to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of it's not aliens, it's worse, it's us. And monthly co-host Cap Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. If you are interested in contributing to the show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Ryan Peterson, and he has two books out called Judgment of Nephilim and The Final Nephilim. And I believe that he's also going to be partaking in a conference coming up soon about the Watchers. And I think uh, I was looking at the list. One of the people that I recognized on that list was also L.A. Marzulli. So thank you for coming on today. Gary, thank you for having me. So, um, you know, it's kind of funny that this topic is coming up. Because yesterday somebody was showing me a picture of David. Um, the statue, the famous statue of David. And, um, you know, one of the things that I never noticed was that one hand was bigger than the other, and that has to do with his battle with Goliath, who happened to be a giant. It may have possibly been a Nephilim. Um, so do you believe that Goliath was some type of Nephilim or just a large human? Uh, I absolutely believe Goliath was a Nephilim. Uh, and I think that that entire account of David versus Goliath, I mean, he's the most famous Nephilim in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So uh, the only one we see mentioned by name. And I think that's, uh, you know, the, the details that we see, you know, the, the Bible goes in such detail about describing even his armor, his chain mail and everything he has on, uh, you know, in modern American metrics, uh, you know, he's wearing about, over 200 about 220 pounds of armor mm. so this is in addition to being you know anywhere from about eight and a half to nine feet tall he was incredibly supernaturally strong so yes i do think he's one of the post-diluvian nephilim wow so we're not talking about like an andre the giant here we're talking real <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> so um Give background, you know, like, you know, about the story of the Nephilim and the fallen angels and um, intermission here on Earth. Yeah. So, you know, the thing about the Nephilim is that, you know, they're some of the most infamous critical characters in the earliest parts of the Bible. But they're also some of the most unknown to even people who go to church every week. But if you think about two stories that everyone kind of knows generally, when you think of the Bible, the Garden of Eden and Noah's Ark. That's really where they come into play. And the way I set up my first book, Judgment of the Nephilim, which goes into the origins of the Nephilim in the Bible, is I just start with the Garden of Eden because that's really where everything started. You have, of course, Adam and Eve sinning, which most people are familiar with that account. 
And but you have an important announcement in Genesis chapter three, where God is he sentences Adam, he sentences Eve, he's giving everyone their respective punishments, punishments. But when he punishes the devil in Genesis 315, he makes a really important announcement that the devil's defeat, he tells him how he's going to be defeated. And he says that it's going to be a child, that a seed, meaning an offspring, a child is going to be born one day of a woman who will conquer him. And so why that matters, and I call that the ultimate prophecy in, in, in my book, and that's, of course, the prophecy of the, the first prophecy of the Messiah. The Messiah would come and be born one day. And, that, and from, the, from the fallen angelic perspective, that was a big revelation because it wasn't going to be God sending a legion of angels to capture Satan and punish him and take him away or lightning from heaven. It was going to be a child, a human child, you know, seemingly inferior, but obviously given power by God to defeat him. And so that set the course of history where Satan now had a target to try and prevent the birth of this Messiah, either prevent the birth to kill the Messiah or somehow corrupts the Messiah. And so this is what leads to the events that of Genesis 6 and, the, and Noah's Ark, as we know it more commonly, is that once, you know, I talk about how, you know, any potential son could have been the Messiah. Even we think of Cain and Abel, I talk about how Cain the first son of Adam and Eve, he could have been the Messiah from the devil's perspective, from the angelic perspective, because he was the firstborn son of Eve, of the woman, the firstborn seed. And so, of course, we see Cain gets corrupted and murders his own brother, Abel. And so that was almost a two for one strike by the devil. And so what happens is God banished Cain and then human population started growing. He allowed the godly lineage that would lead to the Messiah, this bloodline leading to the Messiah to continue Absent the presence of Cain's family, that sets the stage for Genesis 6, where we're told human population expands and grows. And it says now that humanity has expanded exponentially, the population, the potential messiahs out there were numerous. There are lots of guys running around who could have been the messiah. And so this is why the devil needed a large scale attack. And that sets the stage for what happened in Genesis 6, where you have a group of fallen angels took human women as wives, married them and fathered the Nephilim, the half hybrid, they're half fallen angels half-human hybrids who uh, then kind of overran the world. You know, the, 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 the Bible says the earth was filled with violence and that all flesh had corrupted itself. So not only were they dominating the world and taking over and killing, and uh, they were also corrupting human genetics. And I believe the devil's agenda was if humanity could be corrupted genetically to become something other than human, then the human Messiah could not be born. And uh, I think there's support for that with the selection of Noah. Of course, God chooses Noah. And this is where we get to our, the part where everyone knows. Everyone knows about Noah's Ark. And the common story is that God flooded the earth because, hey, mankind was being bad. God flooded the earth and just rebooted. But it was really a, to protect <laughs> the last remnants of pure humanity. And the Bible even says that Noah was perfect in his generations. And that word perfect in Hebrew is tamim, which means physically perfect without blemish. So he was phys he was perfectly human in addition to being a believer in God. And that's why God chose him to reboot human humanity and human genetics to save us um, and wash out the giants and their angelic forefathers with the flood. Hmm. So where I when I think about this, this scenario, um, my first question is, why would God wait so long? send the Messiah why would he wait 3,000 years or whatever it was 
Yeah, great question. I think that, uh, you know, a lot of what's taking place in humanity, in, in human history, as described in the Bible, you know, we were kind of thrown into a war that predates us. Satan rebelled before Adam and Eve were created, right? When he, when we see him in the Bible, he shows up evil. So there's a history of things that took place in the angelic realm, the, the original rebellion before humanity is even on, on earth at all. And so we're in the, we're thrust into the middle of this battle. So a lot of what is playing out in the history we see in the Bible is not just the redemption of humanity. It's also proving i think there's god is proving his way his word his truth is right to the angelic realm one and two a big big part of what god god's agenda in proving he is god is prophecy you know in isaiah 46 god says if you want to know that i am the god of gods el elion the most high god says it's based on prophecy. He says, I've declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that have come to pass. So one of the ways God proves to all creation that he is truly God is that he's going to tell you things thousands of years before they happen. So the, the, the human history and human existence is part of the evidence that God is presenting to creation, that he truly is God in, in control of everything and allowing events to play out, but also prophesying what, where all the individual human choices and angelic choices are going to lead to ultimately. And that, which of course we see there are hundreds of prophecies in the Bible. <clears throat> Would that make God like an author of a epic that just contains billions and billions of characters? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a, I mean, that, that is what the Bible is essentially, right? God is the author and it is, the, it is an epic. You're right. I think that's a good description. And I think there's a, there's a, uh, God weaves his way in and out of human volition that we're going to make our choices. We're going to make our, our paths and, and make our, and make decisions every day. But God is weaving his will through them. Whether we choose good or choose evil, God is still going to use that in order to bring about his will. You know, easy example of that is the story of Joseph, right? His brothers. I mean, it's, he <laughs> it never gets it. I don't think it gets enough. <laughs> I don't think it gets enough, like, uh, it's not taken as seriously as it should be. You know, his brothers essentially jump him, throw him in a ditch, tell his dad is de he's dead and leave him, leave him for dead. And he's sold into slavery. And, you know, it's a horrific thing to do. You know, he was 17 years old. You know, these is, you know, think, you know, your family does that to you. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And then he's thrown into a, they, and then on top of it in Egypt, he, sold as a slave, he's then accused of, you know, assaulting a woman who he didn't assault. who And so then he's thrown in prison. So all these horrible things happen to him. But ultimately that led to him becoming second command of Pharaoh and saving his brothers. You know, 20 something years later, he saves his brothers when there's a famine and he's in a position now to rescue them so they don't die. So again, and he even realized in the end and said, what you have intended for evil, God intended for good. So God weaves his will through him and volition and it just plays out. Throughout, throughout the Bible and, and today until we get to the culmination in Armageddon. Hmm. Um, are there did the flood destroy all the Nephilim or is there still Nephilim DNA on earth that is showing itself as the Illuminati? 
Great question. So I, I think that the the giants uh, before the flood were destroyed uh, for the most part, but I think their DNA made it through the ark. So I don't believe there was a second uh, kind of fornication relations after the flood with angels and women, but I do think the DNA made it through the flood, made it through the flood on the ark, which is how we have giants after the flood. Excuse me, like Goliath, like the three sons of Anak we see in, in Numbers chapter 13. Um, Ahiman, Sashai, and Talmai. I think that's, they're all, they can all be traced back to one particular family. And that would be the family of Ham, one of the sons of Noah, and his wife. I believe specifically she uh, carried the Nephilim DNA. And there's some interesting details about Noah that we see in the description of the flood is that he, he, uh, when you look at the genealogies in the Bible, the early patriarchs, most obviously before the flood, lifespans were longer. Uh, people lived to 700, 800, 900 years. And they, most men had their first child at 60 years old, 70 years old. And then you see the next generation listed in these genealogies. Noah did not have his son, his first son until he was 500 years old. And why does that matter? It matters because he stepped on the ark when he was 600 and God gave, God told him when God instructed him to build the ark, he said he was going to give humanity 120 years and then he was going to judge the world. So the, the Nephilim takeover, this hybridization, the women being corrupted, human genetics being corrupted, all this was well underway when Noah started, started building the flood and God told them, I'm only going to allow 120 years of this and then I'm, I'm bringing it to an end. And the testimony of scripture is all flesh had corrupted itself. So by the time Noah had his son, his sons, and they were old enough to marry and have children, the chances of finding a woman who had no genetic contamination, essentially, from these fallen angels was very probably slim to none. And then you put on, t- on top of the fact that Ham, we see after the flood, really didn't care about Noah. He's, there's, they, there's this mysterious account of a sin that takes place with them. And I think that you have someone who, who would be open to marrying someone without worrying about whether they were of the line of the fallen angels. And so I point to that. And the other thing I point to in my book is that all of the giants after the flood can be traced back to Canaan, who was the son of Ham and the grandson of Noah and who Noah actually cursed, by the way. They're all traced back to him. And even when you get to the wars in the book of Joshua, where God says exterminate this, these seven nations, the Girgashites, the Hivites, these are Amorites. They're all descendants of Canaan specifically. So it's not just go in and kill everyone you see. It's specifically targeting a specific lineage from one person. And so, uh, so I think that is all the evidence that it, it, this is where we get to that they, that they, how the DNA made it through the ark. Now, is it here today? I think it'd be in remnants. I think that we see that, uh, by the time we get to the days of King David, who, of course, fought Goliath as a kid, um, the last Nephilim are mentioned uh, when he's grown up. His David's mighty men, his elite soldiers, um, essentially, they they fight the last Nephilim mentioned in Scripture. And from there, they're never mentioned again. I think today what we see is uh, where we really see the Nephilim manifest the most, I think, today is... Uh, in demons, in demonology, I believe the demons are the spirits of the deceased Nephilim. And I think that's why even when you look at things like, uh, say, like the UFO phenomenon, which I think is a 
demonological, a demon, you know, essentially this, these are demonic encounters. A lot of what you see from people who, who have abduction stories and things of that nature deals with sex organs, reproduction, because again, it's again, this idea of mingling seeds. So I think that's where we're seeing that presence uh, more often than, than not today. Interesting. That's what, um, like, uh, what Nathan Gillis would, would say. That's part of like his, um, theory too, is that they are demonic. Um, so if, if that's the case, if, if the Nephilim are now demonic, and we know that demons have the ability to possess humans, how do we tell the difference between a human that's actually a human versus a human that is possessed by Nephilim? Right. That's a, it, it can be tough. You know, I think the good thing is that you know, often, more often than not, we see, at least from, from the, from the Bible, because, you know, when, when at Christ's first advent on earth, this ministry on earth, I mean, there are demon possessed people all over the place. And, uh, for the most part, we see two things about the one. They're either acting, you know, kind of insane. You know, there was one man, the man, the Gardarines who's chains and he had thousands of demons in him and they call themselves Legion because there were so many. And, He's cutting himself. He, they said he could not be contained. He's, they, people are chaining him up. He's in, in a graveyard and he's breaking out of the chains. He's stripping his clothes off. So we see clear, irrational, kind of insane behavior. Um, the other way that's not so obvious is in their spiritual message. And this is, you know, we can go to the book of Acts and where they have, uh, you know, this the woman, they call her the damsel in, 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 uh, uh, sorry, Philippi, who, she is possessed by a demon and she's following the apostles. And she says, these are men who, who point you to and lead you to the most high God. So she was saying something that was actually correct. They did worship the most high God, Yahweh, God of the Bible, but she was possessed by a demon. And so, uh, I think so that's, so, so, so those are the two, the two indicated I see in scripture are either that some type of kind of deceptive spiritual message or, just when someone's just obviously the more insane kind where it seems pretty obvious to anybody that at least the person has some serious problem going on. So today in our current situation in the world, how much of it do you believe the Nephilim are responsible for? Great deal. You know, cause again, what we see is, you know, the, the, the scriptures say that the idols of the world are demons you know it says devils but that's demonion in greek that's so it's telling us that when you look at false belief systems pagan gods that the demons now they're seeking worship in addition to just possessing people they're they are setting up much of the idolatry in the world and and you think about also what is inspiring a lot of <laughs> the things that are pushing humanity towards more evil, towards trying to be like God. You know, I talk about in my new book about the, the big push uh, by Silicon Valley tech moguls to, you know, this transhumanism push to seek inward, you know, uh, life extension technologies, uh, things that can achieve immortality, but transport your consciousness to AI or let your physical body live forever. You have, 
you know, you have billionaire moguls who are pouring millions of dollars into researching this. Essentially, they're seeking immortality. They do not want to, they literally are seeking immortality. And so, uh, you know, what's inspiring, what spirit is the inspiration behind that? I think a lot of the spirits that are operating that are bringing us to whether it's that or people into the occult, into the new age movement, um, the popularity of things now where it's become common. You know, I, I, I started my career working in New York City on Wall Street. And it's amazing that now you have, uh, you know, investment bankers taking two week retreats to Peru to take ayahuasca journeys with shamans, things that would seem so fringe and now mainstream for people to do. And, you know, of course, all that is, again, you know, things that are doing mind altering drugs that are accessing Essentially, you're trying to access the spiritual realm, access and you know the demonic realm. And so I think what's inspiring all this, I think that's where the demons play a huge, huge role in setting the stage for what's to come in the end times. So what is the end times? Is it genocide? <laughs> to a certain extent, yeah. So yeah, I mean, ultimately, there will be a lot of genocide, right? So the, the end times, as I see it, is the day of the Lord of the Great Tribulation, the final seven years on earth before the second coming of Jesus Christ, literally physically coming to earth, those final seven years, which are mostly detailed in the book of Revelation. And so, you know, you look at the, the kingdom or the government of the Antichrist, you know, as described in Revelation 13 and other chapters and a lot it's complete control society where it's obedience or death and you know with the descriptions that you're going to see the deaths of millions of people who either don't worship the antichrist or don't take his mark or the mark of the beast or um are suffering from the judgments the cataclysmic judgment that are brought on earth during the book of revelation so yes yeah, so i think it's it's not really it's it's genocide for some for those who will not completely be obedient and submissive to the government. If you're, if you're going to worship the Antichrist and take his mark, then I, I don't think you'll be killed. But for those who resist, yes, they, they will be executed. What if it's the other way around? What if um, Christian believers take it upon themselves to slay everybody that doesn't believe in Christianity? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think that... Uh, that I, that notion of um, I think that kind of idea has been around that, that that there could be some like resistance forces and tribulation forces um, that could fight back uh, against the Antichrist kingdom. But I, I would say, uh, as someone who's definitely a, a student and believer in Bible prophecy, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says repeatedly that he the the beast the antichrist he says he will wear out the saints he will fight the saints and he will pre prevail it, pre it predicts he's going to win that those who are still believers during the great tribulation um they're going to be they're going to lose they're going to be killed and in fact but, but you know but the, but but we talked about things from the fallen angelic perspective before from the righteous from the godly perspective it's actually not the worst thing you know, you, we see in, in, in Revelation 15, John's given a vision of the, the martyrs who have been executed. And it says that they, it says they got victory over the beast and victory over his mark. How do they get victory? By resisting. And they're in heaven, standing on a sea of glass before the throne of God, singing the song of Moses, the same song Moses sang when he 
after the Red Sea parting and the Egyptian army is being destroyed by God. So, so of course, from a human perspective, or earthly perspective, it's tragic. But the Bible predicts that the Christians and believers in the end times, they're not going to be able to resist. They're going to lose. They, your choice essentially is serve the Antichrist or lose, give up your life. When we give up our lives, say, and, uh, and we are serving the Antichrist rather than God, how do we define death? Are we talking about death of a body? Are we talking about some type of complete annihilation of the soul? Yeah, so I think that uh, for the believers who are martyred in the Great Tribulation, it's death of their body. Their soul will go to heaven. You know, absent of the body is present with the Lord, so they go to heaven. Uh, for those who choose to take the mark, uh, I think that they are altering themselves. So I think they're, they're not dying when they take the mark at that point, but they are killing the humanity in them. I think it's the mark of the beast has an economic component, right? You can't buy or sell any good without the mark. So you can't participate basically in society if you don't have the mark. But also I think it, is, it has a genetic component that you're taking on the genetics of the antichrist of the beast and that is kind of, again like a repetition of what the devil is trying to do with the nephilim in genesis 6 and so when you do that you have you have again made yourself corrupted yourself to the point that you're now no longer an image bearer of god and therefore you're disqualified from redemption so you're essentially cutting yourself off from any type of redemption for your soul and i think you know this is why it says in revelation 14 if anyone takes the mark anyone there is no forgiveness there is no redemption and uh you will burn suffer torment in the lake of fire forever and uh you know that's a lot that's a pretty loaded statement why what would it be why would that one action lead to that strong of a proclamation. In fact, it says God is going to send an angel around the world to actually literally announce this, to let everyone know, listen, if you take this mark, there's no turning back. So what is it about this thing that would lead to that, that type of doom? You're permanently doomed no matter what you do. And I think it's because it's making you, it's literally changing your nature to something other than being human. Do you think that uh, COVID vaccination is the mark? No, I don't. And I think, uh, you know, it's another good, I'm glad you asked the question because I got to ask that question a lot. And the reason why I think it's not is because this is the ultimate choice. When the mark comes, there is no question as to what it's about. And in fact, and it's, it's directly connected to a man, to the Antichrist. It's the mark that bears his name. It bears the number of his name, 666. So it's, it's, there's no, I think when the mark is instituted, there's going to be no debate that if you're taking this, you're, you are saying, I'm pledging my allegiance to this person and who I think is God essentially. And so it's not, I don't think it's going to be something where you're going to be deceived or tricked into taking something that turns out to be the mark. It's going to be very clear that you are making an active choice to pledge yourself to somebody. What happens to somebody like me who refuses to pledge allegiance to anybody? <laughs> well, you know, um, 
you know, this is this is the the the, the big question of human existence, right? It's it's it's, it's what the, the way ultimately it all, all everything comes down to is, and this is why I think it goes back to your question about why is God letting this play out so long? Do you believe him or not? Is his word true or not? I think even what Satan is trying to prove on the angelic level, right? I think Satan, does Satan want to rule the earth? Yes. Does Satan want all, all human beings to worship him? Yes. All right. That's the common thing we know. But I think there's a judicial action taking place in the heavenly realm between the fallen angels and God and the righteous angels. And the devil is trying to prove it's like he's in a court of law. God is not always right. His word is not always true. And so, so much of what's happening that we see play out in the Bible is about, is God's word actually always true? And that's, that's what we have to, as every individual has to, to, to reconcile with and reckon with it. Cause it, if it's not true, okay, then maybe what you think is going to happen to your soul, what you've determined will happen to your soul at death is right. But if it is true, if God's word is true and God shows through the Bible and even now, time and time again, that his word comes true. You know, there are roughly hundred to seventy-five prophecies of the first coming of Christ about and that Jesus fulfilled. There are hundreds more prophecies that have been fulfilled that we have physical proof of now um, through archaeology. If God's word is true, well then upon death, we we're all gonna face that same God who's been telling us to believe and trust in him for millennia. So that's what it comes down to. I believe the word, the word is true. And so, uh, so if that's the case, then we, of course we have to reconcile with him and he's the whole Bible is God's plea to just reconcile with him. Christianity is the only religion in the world belief system, period. That tells you one, three things that Christianity tells you that no other religion will tell you one you're a horrible person. You're evil. You're terrible. You're, you're a wretch and you know it. Two, there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot somehow through any process, ritual, work, action, make yourself perfect morally. Three, God can, God can and he'll do it for free. Every other belief system tells you either you're already a God or you're 90% there and you have to do some steps to get there or that you can redeem yourself or you have to do certain actions to reach heaven, nirvana, what, you know, name, insert your name there. So, um, so yeah, so not only does God tell us that his word is true, he's offering the, the means to redeem, to redemption for free. It's simple belief and trust. It's not an action. It's not climbing a mountain. It's not even doing good things for people at all. I tell that to people all the time. It's not helping a lady across the street who's in, who can't carry her groceries. It, God doesn't even need you to do that. It's simple trust. The thief on the cross, the perfect example. He's literally being crucified, hands and feet nailed. He can't do anything. And all he said to Jesus was, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, to this day, you will be with me in paradise. He could not move. And yet, all he had to do was speak his belief. And Jesus said, you're forgiven. You're coming to heaven. In fact, you'll see me today after you die. Hmm. So, you know, like I said, mentioned, I, I, 
refuse to bow down to anyone. <laughs> I refuse to bow down to God. I refuse to bow down to the devil. Sure. And um, sure. And, and and I look at this whole drama as yeah. them just being two assholes fighting with each other for fucking eternity. <laughs> You know, sure, like, sure. what the hell? This is petty BS. If you're God, yeah. right, or if I was God, mm -hmm. I would consider myself above this petty nonsense. Yeah, yeah, sure. So what's, I, he, I, what's he doing? Why is he being such an a-hole? <laughs> well, you know, <clears throat> this is a, I, I, I fully get that perspective. You know, I mean, it goes back to, you know, you're – you know, you're, you're really hitting at some of the biggest philosophical questions. They aren't often phrased the way you frame them, but these are some of the biggest questions, right? Cause it's like, why are we going through this? Right. If God is here, why isn't he just revealing himself? Why are we suffering? Right? Essentially, right? Cause if the world was perfect, no, no one would be mad at God, right? If we were living in a paradise with no harm, sickness, death, there would be zero complaints, right? Or maybe there would be, but I don't think there'd be a lot less complaints about God, I, I think. And so why are we going through this, right? And so it's, it's, a, you know, it's a, it's a great philosophical question. I think ultimately the only way that's going to make sense is to start to understand who God is and what's going on. And that's, it can only be understood. You have to get into the text, right? You have to, so the only God gave us a 66 books to understand how did we get here? How do we, what is going on? And so what God is showing us is that we are literally living in a very brief window. You know, a big part of what I talk about in my second book is time, how God exists outside of time. That to, if you lived for a hundred thousand years, one year is not that big a deal to you. So to us, it means so much. A century is just monumental to a human being, to a mortal. But if you're outside of time or you're immortal, it's not that big of a deal, right? The, the Bible says a day, one day with the Lord is like a thousand years. So all of human existence is a brief window compared to eternity. And in this brief window, there's a conflict going on that is going to come to an end. This isn't going to go on forever. This is the Bible. I mean, it's, the Bible is very clear that this is a very short time in the heavenly angelic realm that there's this conflict going on that God is going to resolve. It's going to come to an end. And everyone who's not on God's side is going to be disposed of. And there will be God openly manifesting, right? The, the, the beauty of Revelation is that there's all this death and destruction, but it ends with God is now living with man. So there's no questioning who is God, where is God, why am I here? It will be open, what I call the veil between the spirit realm and the earthly realm will be removed permanently. So all those questions will be gone. So unfortunately, the sad thing is that because of a, a cosmic battle that took place, we're now in the midst of this conflict, but it's not going to be a long one. In the, in the big scheme of things, it's not that long. You know, and I say this to people all the time. I'm like, you know, if, if you, and I, I, like, for example, the age of the earth, right? I'm not a young earth creationist, right? I believe the earth is millions upon millions of hundreds of millions of years old. But even, let's say, let's say you believe that, right? Like, which I do. Human civilization can only be traced back literally at the most 8,000 years. Active human civilization. So we're, again, even just from that perspective, just from the age of the earth, we're a speck on the age of the earth. Our entire existence, every the billions of people who've lived, we're a speck on the, on the age of this planet. So 
Um, so again, this is a short window, <laughs> but you know, God's telling us just hang on. I'm taking care of everything. And if you trust me, I'm going to give you a world where you'll never question me again because you can just see me every day. But we have to get through this conflict first, unfortunately. What if God and Satan are not really the top of the heap? Okay. Let's say <laughs> they're just two stupid kids that refuse to stop fighting. And they need somebody like me to step in <laughs> and kick both their asses and put an end to it. If you have that power, I, I'd be, uh, you're, you're an impressive uh, being. I wouldn't even say man. You're an impressive being. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, and I, I, you know, and I get it. You know, I think, um, I think back, you know, uh, to the movie Constantine with Keanu Reeves came out mm -hmm. years ago, but, um, you know, based on a comic book series and a very interesting movie. It deals with fallen angels and questioning God and, you know, uh, a man who has, can speak to angels and speak to God and go to heaven. And, and so, and then have this line that say, God is, uh, God is just playing with an ant farm. And where are they in form, right? And so that's one way to look at it. But I think what cuts through all of that, I think what cuts through all of those things, all those notions is Jesus and what Jesus did. And what I mean is I don't mean just dying on the cross. I mean, becoming a human, right? Becoming a human, right? Um, I'll make another pop culture reference I think is actually very applicable, right? There's a song. I, I, I'm more of a 90s kid. So this is more of going back to going mm -hmm. back in the day. But there's a song. uh called what if god was one of us it says just a slob on the bus right and the funny thing about that song is at the time a lot of christians thought that song was kind of blasphemous oh you're calling god a slob what if he was like a slob on the bus no but that's exactly what jesus did that the song is actually describing why jesus did what he did leaving the throne of heaven having all the power on the throne of heaven and becoming a human, coming down in the muck and becoming a flesh and blood baby that's crying, that's going to the bathroom, that has to be fed and burps and all those things and suffering and being tempted and all the things that God chose to lower himself. That's to me what cuts through all this stuff. So it's not God's it's just sitting here in an ivory tower, just looking down on us in a glass jar because we're his plaything. He chose to come down and get in the dirt with us. And I said this, I said, you know, I taught, I taught kids for 10 years in New York City in church, Sunday school. And I said, listen, I said, imagine, I'll give an exact example of the ants. So imagine you saw ants, you know, running around, they're doing their thing and there's ant hills and they're getting stuff and gathering things. And then you see that they're headed towards a big, uh, you know, let's say food or treat that's poisoned. And you want to save them. But the only way you can do it is by becoming an ant yourself. Would you do it? And they're like, no, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I'm like, why not? And they're like, I don't want to be an ant. I don't have to be, I don't, why would I do? And I'm like, yeah, exactly. I was like, but yeah, that's exactly what God did. And then imagine how you'd be treated. I said, I mean, even my kids, my kids are young. I've said this many times. But imagine how if I, you know, my kids, my kids are in elementary school. My son's seven years old. Imagine one day, you know, like something out of a movie. Dad's a seven-year-old now. Now I'm your size. Imagine how they, they'd be pushing me around like crazy. They wouldn't listen to me. You know, my kids, I'm like Darth Vader to my kids. But if I was seven years old, imagine how they treat me. And my daughter's nine. 
So again, it's like, but yet God chose to do that. And we, and what, what did we do? We punked him. We treated him. He was slapped. He was mocked. He was doubted. People said he's a fraud. They, they even they talked about his, his mother. They said, your mother had you. You're a child born out of wedlock. You know, they said, so they did everything under the sun that we do to people who we think we can dominate, right? To the point of killing him. So to me, what Jesus saying, you know what? I'm going to go down there. I'm going to become an ant. I'm going to be a roach. I'm going to get in the mud and become one of them to live with them and suffer with them. And it says that now you read the book of Hebrews. It says, when you pray to God, you're not praying to a distant God who has no idea what you're going through. You're praying to a God who knows exactly what you went through. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was denied by Peter. Peter said, I don't know this guy. Don't never heard of him. You know, Peter was his right hand man, like his brother. And yet when push came to shove, he said, I've never heard of him. Don't know who Jesus is. So he understands the hurt, the pain, the disappointment, the rejection, jealousy, bigotry, you name it. He's been there. And so that's why I say God isn't just sitting back. We're not his aunt farm. We're his family because he he literally is one of us now. He's fully God and fully man. He fully understands the human experience. And so now we pray, we're praying to him. He's not distant. He's like, yeah, I've been there. I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. And I'm with you and I support you and I love you. I'm going to bring you out of it. I'm going to still play devil's advocate here if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) No pun intended, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't find the story of Jesus that impressive in what he did. Mm -hmm. If, If I was in a situation where somebody said, Dude, all you have to do is suffer for 35 years, die, and go to heaven yeah. to save all of humanity. I'd be like, no problem. I mean, that's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, like, where is the big deal in that? The dude didn't live yeah. that long. Yeah, you know, sure. Yeah, he suffered a few human things, but all yeah. humans suffer. And I know yeah. humans have suffered more than Jesus has. You know, well, I think we all do, actually. Some of us live it every day. Yeah, sure. So, so I have to ask myself, like, well, where is the big deal here? Like, like, like he really didn't do a whole lot, you know, other than heal a few people, um, walk raise around some different towns and talk and stuff. <laughs> you know, he yeah. has he had like uh, some twelve dudes that followed him. You know, one which I would say is pretty sketchy, which is Paul. Because Paul is the one who turned Jesus into a savior. And why did Paul do that? Why did Paul want to glorify the story of Jesus, which I think really, I don't think that's what Jesus wanted. I don't think Jesus wanted Paul to do that. I think it goes against everything that Jesus freaking taught. And create a religion out of Jesus's teachings. And in, in a way, I think Paul bastardized Jesus in his message. Yeah. Well, you know, Jesus made some pretty bit bold statements, right? He said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. He who believeth in me hath eternal life present tense. That you, once you believe in me, you, you're going to live forever. I mean, these are bold claims. So if he was not trying to gain notoriety, 
or fame or build a religion around himself, why make those statements, right? I mean, John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the Bible, right? That, you know, God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. He's, he, Jesus said that. That's Those are his own words. But he also that calls himself the son of man. Yeah, absolutely. Quite often. He calls himself the son of man yeah. way more yeah. than he calls himself the son of God. A- a- absolutely. Which, again, goes to my point that he is a man. He's he's he want he's identifies he wants everyone to know that he is fully human. He became a human. It says that he learns in the Bible, right? That he was a child. He grew and learned, grew in wisdom, and this is uh something where I think it's it's uh in my in my new book in Final Nephilim I, I deal with and I, I and how that could be I relate to quantum physics, and I think that um quantum physics is really is the scientific discipline that is the closest to tapping into the spiritual realm to me by far. Mm-hmm. And so this idea in quantum physics of quantum superposition, that a particle, an electron can exist in two states, different states at once. It can be spinning up and spinning down at the same time is I think science's way of explaining what the Bible has been saying for millennia. Jesus says that he is, he prays to the Father, right? Jesus is on earth and he's praying to the Father in heaven. But yet he says, I and the Father are one. He tells his disciples, his, his disciples, I want to see the Father, show us the Father. So if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, how is that? How, if they're in two different locations, how are they the same? How are they one? The Bible says that there are three that bear witness that in heaven, that God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. How does that make any sense? Well, I think again, if you think about it from the scientific perspective, it's going beyond the realm, right? When you get down to the quantum realm, the quantum field, as it's called, that yes, you can have uh, particles and things that can exist in multiple states at one time. And so, yes, so Jesus is fully, he is the son of man because he was born of humanity. He was born from a human woman. But, but, if that, but that's true. If that's true, then that would make you and me also the son of man. We are, we are human, because, yeah. Because we're all yeah. part of that same particle. We are, we, yeah. We are part of, yeah. Of course, we are, yeah. We are the. And the Bible says that refers to humanity as the children of men. We are sons of men. We are, but but from an from an ancient, um, this is more of a cultural thing, right? So, in in if we're looking at for the context of what he's saying, when you say the son, right? Like it, it's it's saying there's a headship that he's the head of humanity. Right. So, yes, he's a man, son of man. We're all children of men. Right. We're all children of men. Just like angels are all called sons of God. They're all called that in Genesis 6. Elohim, sons of God. But yet he is the son of God. So, again, there's a he's making the distinction. That's more of a cultural thing to say. I'm the preeminent of he's of all humanity, just like being called the firstborn in Scripture. It doesn't actually sometimes it doesn't even mean you're actually the first son, but it, you're you have the preeminent position. So. um, So, yeah. You personally, if you had a choice, would you be crucified to save humanity? Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. <laughs> I'd have to really think about that. It'd be hard. I mean, I, I mean, I'm someone who, um, I mean, I would put it this way. I, I, mean, I what, probably what if you're the Messiah and you don't family? know? I, <laughs> Maybe Jesus didn't know he was the Messiah. What's that? Maybe he didn't know that he was the Messiah. Oh, no. Kind of like in the uh, temptation. (laughs) Yeah, no, you know. 
I mean, he he told his disciples he was going to die. I mean, he told them. He said he's going to die. Well, he said he's going to be. But he says, but he said he's going to come back. <laughs> he also said he's, he said he'd come back. They didn't believe him. None of them believed him, actually. Um, but he, you know, he said it. Um, so he said that you know that was his mission. He said he came. That was why he came to. He came to the world the first time. So, um, so I, I don't think he. I don't think it's a situation where he was unaware. Um, I think he's totally aware uh, of of his mission, and and he completed it, um, much to the surprise of his disciples. Right? Think about that. His twelve guys, friends who traveled with him every day for three and a half years, saw him do all the things he did, and yet they still didn't believe it was going to happen. You know, Thomas said, I'm not even going to believe it until I actually touch him. I got to see, put my hand in the wounds. Even if I see him, I'm not going to believe he's a, it's him, that he's alive. So, um, yeah, it was stunning. But, you know, he did what he came to do. He, he, he prophesied it. He achieved it. And then he proved it. Came back and Thomas got to touch the wounds. He appeared to 500 people. And, and look, and then think about that, too. You have, you have uh, the, the disciples, you know, they, they scatter scatter when everything went down when the authorities came and arrested him they they ran on him they left him denied they knew his name and yet the same man who said i've never heard of jesus who was his best friend then just a few months later is willing to die when he's told if you say this man's name if you say his name we will kill you so i'm not going to stop i will definitely say his name so what could cause that transformation? He didn't get any money. You know, this wasn't the big money church of, of 2022. These were people who were living on the outskirts, on the fringe, um, and who are a minority, right? It wasn't like Christianity was dominating at that time. They were a minority religion. They were probably seen as a cult following this guy who got executed a few months ago. And they think he's God, right? They were a cult in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire. And yet... They were all, all of them died for him in the end. All the disciples were martyred in the end and were willing to say, I will die for this man. And because I know exactly who he is now. When just a few months earlier, they said, I don't even know him. Never heard of him. So again, I think even that alone is testimony to the reality of Jesus's resurrection. What about yourself? Would you allow yourself to be crucified to save humanity? I would. I would. I would too. Without yeah. Thinking about it. Yeah. Of course. I because mean, I mean I would die in a heart just to save my family I'd be crucified. Much less save the entire human race. Absolutely. Interesting. So we talked about the Nephilim create, you know, polluting the human gene pool. There is a story out there. I believe it's the Book of Thomas that's not in the Bible that says that um well, some people interpret it as that Judas felt bad for betraying Jesus, and Judas was actually Jesus's twin brother, and took Jesus's place on the cross so Jesus could escape. And Jesus escaped, got married, had children, and these children of Jesus's lineage is still existing on Earth as part of the Sinclair family. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm very familiar with that account. Um, you know, you get to Da Vinci Code and Merovingian dynasty, then they moved to France. And um, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm very familiar with that. Um, I would say this, you know, there's interesting, right? So you have, 
you know, the Bible, the interesting, there were two interesting things about the Bible that lead to this question. One is that Christians were basically the popularized the use of a codex, actually making a bound book to write things rather than using scrolls, which is why the Bible eventually was called the book. And so that would, that made it easy to get the word out because scrolls could, scrolls could, uh, get damaged very easily. So they're normally just kept in a building. You had to go to a scroll, whereas a Bible, a book, you can just travel with. So that revolutionized how literature was spread on the world. Why does that matter? Because what you have, once you get out of the first century AD and now Christianity is growing, it's spreading, it's popularizing, and the Bible is being put in these bound books and being passed around. There's a whole, there's a whole genre of literature. You know, there's the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, but there are many more books than that that we know about. There's a, there's a, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Apocalypse of Paul. There's a, the Ascension of Isaiah, the Ascension of Moses. So this was a, there was lots of this apocalyptic or Gnostic literature in circulation. It became very, very popular. So a lot of it have all sorts of fanciful takes on characters from the Bible. And so, um, and I think the Gospel of Thomas falls into that category because you had a, a big sect um, called the Gnostics who, again, um, I think were kind of uh, taking elements of the Bible and people from the Bible were putting their own take on it, kind of merging it with, I think, more like uh, Greek philosophy, essentially. And they, they, took their, they, they then took on the interpretation that Jesus was more, was not who the Bible says he is. And so I think, that, you know, that's fine, but that's not the biblical account. That's not what, certainly not what the disciples who wrote the New Testament believed at all. And that's not their testimony. Um, so that's fine that people have their own takes and spins on Jesus and different bloodlines. And he got married and married Mary Magdalene and things like that. But there's a lot of textual history you know the, the evidence and that's the, the another beauty of the bible is that especially when it comes to the new testament the new testament is the most well-documented ancient text bar none i mean there are thousands of manuscripts of the new testament and so you, you can put it against any famous ancient text and it they pale in comparison from a pure evidentiary standpoint so the weight of what the bible was saying at that time is completely contradicts the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Mary Magdalene and those accounts. So what the church believed, I think is very supported that Jesus was the son of God. He did not get married. He died on the cross. And even, even secular um, historians, you know, you can look at secular historians and even poets, Vernal, Tacitus, you know, these are, there are people who wrote, who have no skin in the game, who wrote of Jesus being crucified. They didn't say he's the son of God. They didn't say, yeah, he was, the, he performed supernatural feats. But they say he was a real person, and yet he was killed by the Roman authorities on a cross. So, again, even just secular history supports that. All right. One of the reasons, though, that I believe that there is so, you know, we, we talk about the apostles, but it really still, to me, I mean, who, who, wrote, who brought all these, these stories out was Paul. Paul's the one who sort of recited the stories of the apostles. Um. So they didn't actually come from the apostles themselves. It's not like they all sat down and wrote it. He did. Well, he wrote, you know, he wrote half of it, right? There are 27 books in the New Testament. He wrote 13. Mm -hmm. So he, he wrote a huge, huge part of the New Testament. No question about it. Um, 
But at the same time, you know, he he didn't write the Gospels. He didn't write Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He didn't write the Book of Revelation. You know, so there are, uh, Peter wrote First uh, and Second Peter. You know, the Apostle John wrote five books. So, um, so yeah, but but certainly Paul wrote. He wrote basically half of the New Testament. Um. So with Revelations, the end of time. You know, one of my other qualms with this is if everything is going to end anyway, it all just becomes pointless from beginning to end. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But, you know, but yet here we are, right? Right. You know, here we are uh, today having this discussion because these discussions matter, right? Look, our lives are short. You know, we see people die every day, but yet here we are still grinding it out, trying to make life meaningful, right? So there's something we know, you know, intuitively, and I believe the Bible calls that the residue of the spirit, that the residue of the Holy Spirit is in every person. This is why we have a conscience. We know what right from wrong. We also know that there's something special about us, our race, meaning humanity, mankind, that life is meaningful and precious. And we, we, we are still, we, why are we doing anything? Why are we just sitting at, you know, we could just be sitting down watching TV endlessly. Why even try to do any, achieve anything in life? Because we know there's something, there's a purpose to what we're doing. And we want every human, I think, innately has that sense. We may not all work the same. We may not all do it the same. Some people might do it through making music. Some people might do it, say, I'm going to be a doctor and save as many people or deliver a thousand babies, whatever it might be. Some people say, I'm going to be a teacher and just teach five-year-olds. But we are driven. We're driven by something common. It doesn't matter. You can go anywhere on this planet and human beings have that same drive. And how is that? And I think it's because, it's, again, we are made in the image of God. We know we, we all have a connection to God on some level. And it's telling us that there's a meaning here there's a purpose here it's not just this isn't this is not a drill there's something greater going on and we're seeking it in some way everyone's seeking it in some way and my hope is that we that everyone finds it the way i've found it which is i think the bible which i think is the ultimate truth but there's no denying that we're all seeking it on some level everywhere in the earth every culture every race every country okay (laughs) um so how about extraterrestrials? Yeah. Um, there are accounts in the Bible, you know, of extraterrestrials such as an Ezekiel vision and um, high technology such as the Ark of the Covenant. Um, do you think that there is life on other planets um, that are contributing to this epic unfolding? I think that angels um, have some type of territorial control over other planets. I think that's where it all comes into play. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know how that works. I don't know how exactly it operates. But God's pretty clear early on in the Bible that stars, first of all, stars, angels, those terms are often used interchangeably. And I think that's intentional in Scripture. And I think So there's some connection between angels and outer space. And then even God saying, don't worship the stars, don't worship the heavenly host and saying, 
So there's something going on up there that's connected to the spirit realm. I don't think they're, uh, again, uh, carbon-based physical life forms from another planet. I think everything going on in terms of extraterrestrial life, meaning literal life on other planets, is connected to the spirit realm. And even when you look at, you think about, uh, I always say that I think that there are lots of, uh, uh, like the Gnostics, right? You have these groups that are taking their own spin on Christianity, and they take, I think there's some of them have a little bit of truth, but I think mixed with a lot of error. And so if you look at even Mormonism, this idea that when you die, you get your own planet. There's a lot of Mormonism is connected to accessing the angelic realm. So who knows where that idea came from? Because maybe the, I think that's something that, that possibly angels are doing, that they have their own planets. So I find it interesting that Mormonism teaches that, that you, you got to populate your own planet, you get your own planet automatically upon death. So... Um, so I think, yeah, everything, everything happening in the extraterrestrial plane is a spirit realm phenomenon. I do think they will manifest one day on Earth, um, but it will be a deception. They'll present themselves that way, but it won't be this. It won't be exactly what we think it is. Let's put it that way. So you believe that we're the only carbon based life form in the universe? Yeah, I do. Even though it's mathematically improbable. I mean, by that same, I mean, that's, that argument is, could easily be applied to God, right? I mean, that's, if we're going to argue mathematical improbability, then, that, then everyone should believe in God, right? So, because obviously we had to come from somewhere, right? We did not, it, matter originates from something. So I just think that, uh, again, the, the common alien scenario, I don't believe it. I do, I do that. I don't think we, I, we, look, we've sent satellites so far out. Nothing there. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Do I think that we could have a day where aliens will show up? Absolutely. I do think that. And I think that will happen in the great tribulation, as a matter of fact. Um, but again, it's just not the scenario that we see in movies where they're just, they've been living on another planet, just building advanced technology. And now they've been able to reach us or they seeded us on this planet 7,000 years ago. And now they come back to check on how we're doing. I don't think it's that scenario at all. Um, but I do think that will play a role in the end time, in the great tribulation, those last years. Hmm. Um, I don't know. When I, when I think about this vast universe and for the only life form it's on in it, it kind of just brings me back to that pointlessness. <laughs> why go through the trouble of creating an infinite universe, okay, with one planet yes. with life on it? Doesn't yeah. really make <clears throat> that to me. That doesn't make sense. And then the other thing that you said is about matter. You know, like like yeah. the material form. Okay, mm -hmm. we are not actually material form because you mentioned quantum physics. And I'm sure you're aware that. Quantum physics will tell you that ninety percent that, that that actually nothing matter does not exist. It's just a, a vibratory state somehow stuck within a set of rules and limitations, which is creating an illusion of physicality. Sure, E equals M C squared, right? Everything originates, it's, it's light. Essentially, all things are light, right? Matter itself is a form of light. Like you said, caught in a certain vibrational state. So 
So absolutely. But I would say again, where does light have to still, it still has to start somewhere. Right. And interesting, isn't it interesting, by the way, that the first thing God says in the Bible is let there be light. Isn't that interesting that everything originated in the mm-hmm. Bible from light itself, which is exactly what Einstein and Max Planck and Schrodinger and all the quantum physicists all came to conclusion of, you know, 7,000 years later. So, um, so yeah, so it's got to come back to something, right? And, and I think consciousness ultimately is what Max Planck would say is that postulate, everything postulates from consciousness, that there has to be some origin. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. Um, so before we wrap this up, I want to thank you for coming on and dealing with me playing devil's advocate here. <laughs> this is great. This has been awesome. <laughs> this, um, so, this, this has been one of the most, uh, interesting interviews I've done. I've done many. Um, really? so it's been great. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> No, this is all. This is fun. This is awesome. This is awesome. Because you know what I, you know what I like, and I'll tell you exactly why. Because I think that, um, you know, I, and, and, and for certainly for everyone, in the audience, I'm laughing at some of the questions because I've never asked a question that way. You know, get with Gary's kind of demeanor, and it's funny. But at the same time, I think he's asking some of the most important questions of human existence. I mean, this is like an advanced philosophy class essentially. So I think it's great. Um, that you're you're hitting on things because these are the these are the biggest questions that have been uh, kind of humanity has been wrestling and grappling with since we since the beginning of humanity so of human civilization so um, uh, while we're saying things like why does it matter and who cares you know it, it's these are important these are really important and very very deep questions so this is this it's been awesome it's been awesome so like I say but it's so I, I just say interesting because no one's ever asked me questions the way you do. <laughs> but I think you're hitting on really important things. You know, I'm laughing man. and when you have a funny tone, um, I think these are really deep and important questions. So I appreciate um, this has been great. Awesome. Well, you're welcome back on anytime. And before we wrap it up, though, where can my listeners find you and find your books? A- a- absolutely. Uh, you can find me at judgmentofthenephilim.com, all one word, J-U-D-G-M-E-N-T-O-F-T-H. Uh, e nephilim.com. Um, that's also the name of my social media. So my Facebook is Judgment of the Nephilim. My YouTube channel is Judgment of the Nephilim and, uh, my Instagram as well. Um, and yeah, so you can find there. My books are there. I've, uh, filmed two documentaries. I have study guides. I do a weekly show. I have lots of free video content on my YouTube channel. Um, I've done two seven part series on the Nephilim. I have lots of other stuff I do. I do a weekly show. So, um, all sorts of great stuff you can find. So feel free to reach out, connect, ask me great questions like Gary does. <laughs> I'm happy to uh, engage and interact and answer them. Awesome. And how about the conference that you have coming that's coming up that you're Yeah, yeah. So in-person conferences are back, thank God. Um, I haven't done an in-person conference in over two years. So I'm going to be at uh, the Homeward Bound Conference, which is being hosted by Prophecy Watchers, that ministry. Uh, it's going to be in Colorado Springs, Colorado. May 19th to the 22nd. And um, yeah, so it's going to be 25 speakers there. Gary mentioned earlier, Ellie Marzulli, Josh Peck, Derek Gilbert, lots of, lots of great topics, lots of this stuff. Certainly lots of stuff on UFOs, on all the things we're talking about, demonic de- demons, the supernatural. You're going to get all of that at, at that conference. And um, I'll be giving two presentations there. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it because uh, 
it's just great to be out and meet people, answer questions in person, take photos, and just have great conversations. So it's been it's been way too long. So uh, yes. I'm really uh, looking forward to that. Fantastic. So I'll put a link to all those things in the notes to this episode so my listeners can buy your book, check out your website, look at your content. And ones that are able to attend the conference, they'll be able to go there too. Excellent. Excellent. Appreciate right. it. Well, it was a pleasure having you. Thank you for being on and hang on for a moment while I play the outro. Everything imaginable.